So growing up, that was probably one of my favorite commercials. And I, uh, until recently, re-watching that, I didn't realize it was a Big Mac commercial. I knew it was a McDonald's commercial, but I didn't realize it was for a Big Mac uh, and getting it what you want. What was important for me growing up were the two guys in that video. You guys know them? Larry Bird and Michael Jordan. Uh, these two were the greatest basketball players of their ages, right? Uh, this, is, uh, this commercial came out in 1993. Uh, both of these guys were playing at the top of their game. Uh, they had just gotten done playing for the Olympic team called the Dream Team uh, that won the Olympic gold. Uh, they averaged winning by more than 44 points than the other teams. The closest game in that Olympics was the finals where they won by 32. All right, so that was the closest game that they played. And, and, and it was just one of those things that, that these two players, they just constantly were the top guys. And this commercial fueled uh, the elementary boys' questions of who was the greatest. Right, who was the greatest basketball player? We ask that question from time to time, which is the greatest basketball player? Some of us might have opinions. Right, you might have an idea, and, and, and what we really find out is that greatness is subjective in a lot of ways, because my opinion may not match with your opinion. Some of you may not have any opinion, and that's totally okay. But we ask this question a lot. What, who is the greatest? And, and not just it, with basketball, we ask it in a lot of different ways. Who is the greatest writer of all time? The greatest philosopher? the greatest president of the United States. Who is the greatest? Well, this question isn't a new question. It's a question that comes up even in the Bible. It's a question that the disciples argued with over and over again. And one of the cre reasons I think that we ask this question is we really want to know who is the greatest, and maybe we want to know because in some way we want to imitate what made those men and women great. You know, we want to be great in our area of influence. Maybe not the greatest in the world, but definitely in our area where we live. Maybe we want to be the greatest contractor in Mexico. Or maybe we want to be the greatest manager. And we do this for various reasons. We want to keep our jobs. We want to get promotions. We want people to constantly come back to us because we do a great job. Well, this is a question that, that Jesus addresses in the last meal that he has with his disciples. Uh, we are going to be looking at Luke 22 today. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along with us. Uh, this is the final time that Jesus sits down and he shares a meal with his disciples. And in the midst of this meal, we see that he talks about this area of greatness. Jesus had come to Jerusalem and he came uh, to great fanfare. Uh, the people, pilgrims that had been coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, they were excited. They were expecting Jesus to announce his Messiahship. They were ready for the kingdom to be present on earth. But not everyone was happy. The religious leaders, they definitely did not like the fact that Jesus was there. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees for the entire week leading up to the Passover, they start to question Jesus, trying to find a way for them to arrest him. 
And every question that they asked, Jesus answered to the point that they could not find anything wrong with Jesus. But there was one guy by the name of Judas who, for some reason, became disenfranchised with Jesus. Uh, He was one of the disciples, and yet he went to the religious leaders and he made a deal to betray Jesus for 20 pieces of silver. Well, Jesus sits down at this Passover feast with his disciples, this reminder of them being, the Israelites being taken out of slavery from Egypt. And in the middle of this meal, Jesus pulls off a loaf of bread and he takes it and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body that is broken for you. And in the same way, he takes a cup of juice and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. And we remember this every week, right? Every week we come to church and we take a piece of bread and a little cup of juice and remembrance of what Jesus did at this last supper. But yet in the midst of this great event, this thing that we memorialize every week, we see something strange happen. Uh, We read about in verse 24 of chapter 22, we read that the disciples also arose among them as a, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So the disciples in the midst of this thing that we consider reverent, that we look back upon and say, man, this is an awesome event. The disciples are sitting there arguing with each other over who is the greatest, And it seems strange to us, but we have to remember that for the disciples, this was just another normal Passover feast that they were celebrating. They'd celebrated all their lives. Uh, They had come to Jerusalem with their family, and they had sacrificed a lamb, and they had eaten the lamb together with their family over and over and over again. So this event wasn't necessarily new to them. And so to have this dispute in the midst of this reverent moment for us, it shouldn't seem necessarily strange to us. This is a question that the disciples struggled with over and over again. Jesus will address it at least three times in his ministry over which of them is the greatest. And the reason why this question constantly pops up for them is a matter of this idea of what a Messiah was. See, for us, we look at Jesus with hindsight. We have the benefit of history to judge what Jesus did. But for them, they're living in the midst of this history. And for them, Messiah meant a new kingdom on earth. A Messiah meant a new king. And they had left everything. They had left family. They had left jobs. They had left comforts to travel with Jesus in the hopes that he would be the Messiah, in hopes that he would be the king. And so they were positioning themselves for when this kingdom came into place and positioned themselves to determine who would be on the right of Jesus and on the left of Jesus. These positions of power. They were asking themselves who was number one after Jesus. And it was a question that they were concerned with. And so as we get closer and closer to the end of Jesus' life, we see this question pop up over and over again with the disciples. Because they feel, they know it, 
They know that Jesus is the Messiah. This question first appears in Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, we are told a couple of different stories. We read one of them in this series, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And as Jesus feeds the 5,000, everyone is amazed. And Jesus, after that event, takes his disciples to a remote location. He asks them a simple question, who do you think I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, that is right. And what we find right after that event is they begin to argue with each other over who was to be the greatest. And as they're arguing, Jesus hears this argument and Jesus calls over a child and he sets the child on his knee. And then he says this. He says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. The least is the greatest. And this idea that the least is the greatest, it baffles our mind. The disciples didn't get in. I think a lot of times we don't get it either. According to what Jesus is saying here, it is the bat boy for the Cardinals that is the greatest person on that team. It is the janitor at the large corporation who is the greatest in that company. It is the person that is most often overlooked who is the greatest. And to illustrate this, Jesus uses a child. Children in Jesus' day were often overlooked. This isn't really a good illustration for us anymore because when we look at children, we often put them on a pedestal. Parents will do anything, buy anything, give up anything for their children's happiness. And maybe you've experienced that in your life. But children in Jesus' day were overlooked. They were expected to be quiet and to stay out of the way. I don't want to know that you are near. Children were among the least in their society. And Jesus has this child sitting on his knee as he says, you must be like this child if you really want to be great. Greatness is found in trusting the Father like a child trusts his parents. Well, this doesn't end the argument for the disciples. You would think it would, but, but they're hard-headed at times, and it takes a couple of different illustrations for them to finally get it through their heads what Jesus meant. So as they come through, they, they get to a place where they're about to enter the town of Jericho. Where, where Jesus meets a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And, and as they're waiting to go into Jericho, they're having this argument. And, and what ends up happening is, is this. Uh, G- Jesus has someone approach him. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 20 when, Jesus, when we're told that the mother of the Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee, She came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of Jesus. What is it that you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these 
two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Uh, We read the same account in Mark, but Mark tells us that it's James and John that comes to Jesus. And so probably what's happened is James and John have gone to their mother and said, Mom, will you plead our case for G- in front of Jesus. There's some kind of relationship. They're somehow related to Jesus, and maybe they're expecting Jesus' aunt to buy some sympathy with Jesus. And so she comes, and she does this whole scene in front of the other ten disciples. And I don't know about you, but if someone was coming and bringing their mom to kind of plead their case about why they should be in a better position than me, right in front of me, it probably wouldn't sit well. And it didn't sit well with the other ten. In fact, we read that they start to argue with each other. Okay, who really is the greatest? Which one of us is going to sit at Jesus' right? Which one of us will sit at Jesus' left? And in the midst of this argument, Jesus replies by saying this in verse 26. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, to be great, you must be a slave. And what he's saying is, to be great in the kingdom of God, you must give up your own desires for someone else's. And that goes against everything we think of greatness. Greatness is often the one who has people serving them. I mean, when we think of greatness, we think of a person that has a private jet with a private pilot. When we think of people who are great in this world, we think of people who have all kinds of money and who have influence just because of who they are. So to hear Jesus say that if you truly want to be great, then you must give up your own desires and be a slave to someone else's desires, it just doesn't make sense. And for the disciples, it didn't make sense. That's why we see at this last meal that they share with Jesus, they're arguing over the same thing again. Why? Why did this come up? Well, we're not really told why, except we can piece some things together. See, in the Passover meal, the most important person, the father usually, but in this case, Jesus, would sit in the center of this group of tables. And then the youngest person would sit at the right hand of that important person. And then depending on where you sat in the rest of the rows, and the closer you were to the center, the more important you were. And and. Whether we want to admit it or not, there was a pecking order within the disciples. Yes, we consider them all equal, but in reality, there were three guys that tend to be with Jesus a lot more. Their names were Peter, James, and John. And when we get to the Last Supper, we see something very interesting. The person on the right of Jesus is a guy by the name of John. 
He was probably the youngest, and that was probably by right was his position. But the person on his left was a guy by the name of Judas, the one who, who agreed to betray Jesus. And probably what's happened is this, is G- Judas has positioned himself to come in first, and rather than finding his normal seat, he has decided to sit himself in this position of greatness right next to Jesus. And I can imagine Peter walking in, expecting to sit where Judas is now sitting, and he is doesn't know what to do. Probably got a little angry knowing Peter. And so as he sits down in a different position than what was probably his by right, uh, we see that the disciples begin to ask among themselves, who is greatest? If Judas is sitting there, does that mean that Judas is greater than we are. And so they argue. And in the midst of this argument, John tells us that Jesus got up from the meal. And he took out off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples, drying them with a towel that was around him. As they're sitting there arguing over who is the greatest, Jesus did a very simple thing. He got up, he took his basin, he poured water into it, and he began going from one disciple to the next, getting on his knees, taking off their sandals, pouring water onto it, drying it. A very simple image. But what we don't really recognize sometimes is this. The person whose job it was to wash the feet of people as they came in, it was the slave of the slaves. It was the slave that all the other slaves got to boss around. So within society, this guy was the lowest you could possibly go. And yet, while they're sitting there arguing over who is the greatest, Jesus does the lowest task possible. And the disciples, they've had this conversation before. Jesus has talked to them before about what true greatness is. And it's not until this moment, when he does this act, do they finally get what he's saying. And when he's done, Jesus comes back to his seat and he begins to tell them again what it is to be great. In Luke chapter 2, in verses 25 through 27, we read that Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. We know what greatness is. We define it all the time in our society. We ask these questions, who is the greatest? Every year, there's a list that comes out of who is the richest in the world, right? 
And we ask that question because that's what we define greatness as. It's having authority over people, no matter what your real position in life is. And yet Jesus says within the church, within the kingdom of God, that is not what defines greatness. Greatness, Jesus says here, is being the youngest. And within the Passover meal, the youngest had certain responsibilities. One of the things that he did is he would ask questions at various points within the meal to remind the people why they were there in the first place. They were there in the first place as a reminder that God passed over them as he destroyed the Egyptians. It was a reminder of the freedom that they had been set free from, slavery and bondage. It was the youngest who poured the juices. It was the youngest who dished out the food. And Jesus says he is what we're to be like. We're to be like a child who trusts who doesn't seek greatness. Children don't seek greatness. And we're to act like that. We're to be the youngest. We're to be the slave of the slaves. That is what greatness is. And then Jesus asks a question, who is greater, the one who sits or the one who serves? And we know this answer. I think it's seen pretty clearly in a TV show by the name of Downton Abbey. And Downton Abbey, it came out a couple years ago, and one of the things that constantly happens in the show is they show the servants' lives and the earl's life. And throughout the series, almost every single episode has a scene like this, where there are people sitting for a meal, and there are servants ready to serve them. Who is greatest? the ones sitting down, that they're the ones that are greatest. And yet Jesus says, I'm here and I'm serving. Greatness is found in serving others. Just think for a moment of who Jesus is. Just picture your mind on on exactly who, and if you need help, Paul gives us a very good help in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this. He says, who, Jesus, talking about Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God. He is the creator of the universe. He is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. Jesus is the one that we should be worshiping. And rather than arguing about who is greatest, the disciples should have been arguing over who got to wash Jesus' feet. He is worthy of everything that we could give him. And yet, though he is in the very nature God, Jesus didn't use that to promote himself. 
Jesus could came to this world and said, look, I'm God, serve me. But that's not who, what he did. Instead, we're told that he became a human. He became a human so that he could serve other people. He became a human so that he could humble himself to the point of dying on the cross. He humbled himself to have a body that was broken and blood that had been shed. He humbled himself to take our place on the cross. And if Jesus, the creator of the universe, could humble himself to do that for us, then maybe we can humble ourselves and serve others. Greatness in the kingdom is found in serving other people. Who are you serving? That sometimes can be a tough question. Where are you serving? And and we like to make excuses, don't we, as to why we're not serving anywhere. Sometimes we like to use the excuse that we're just getting to a place where we physically can't. And I understand that. I understand that more now than I did 10 years ago when I thought I was invincible. Now, there are things that I do that takes me time to recover that I didn't have to recover from before. So I understand that. But being physically unable to serve in the capacity that we used to is not an excuse to sit in the pews and do nothing. Paul says this in Ephesians, one of my favorite passages. Uh, He says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance that we should do. See, as we get older and as we get to the place where we physically can't do stuff, it's not like God's surprised. God's like, oh, I got stuff for you to do. He prepared in advance for them, for you to do it. Where are you serving? One of my favorite stories over the last month has been Glenn Mitchell. Uh, Glenn, if you know him, he, he's been having some health issues. He's been falling, um, and, and there were some other uh, uh, infections that were causing some problems. And so about a month ago, they took Glenn and put him in the VA hospital in Columbia. And he's there because he needs to rehab and have some therapy to where he can physically walk by himself again. And they're not sure if he's going to be able to do that. But if you go to ask Glenn and Harriet about where they're serving, here's what they would tell you. They would tell you that ever since Glenn has been in that hospital, as every one of his aides comes in and as every one of his nurses come in, he simply asks them a question. What can I pray for you? And he prays with them. And if you were to ask them, they would say that God is using them more now than, they've, than God has been using them over the last couple years. And they're excited about what God has for them. If anyone has an excuse not to serve because of physical incapability, Glenn does. And yet he serves. 
where are you serving? My other favorite excuse that we often use is that we're too busy. We talked about busyness a couple weeks ago, right? I understand that life is busy. I understand that we have things over here and we have things over there that need to get done. There's, there's work, there's kids and grandkids, which just add to the busyness. But we have to understand that if greatness is defined by serving others, then, then service should not come second to the things that we have to get done. It should come first. If we really want to reach lost people, if we really want to show them the love of Jesus, then we need to be like Jesus. And if Jesus was willing to give up everything to come to this earth, not to be served, but to serve others, to give his body and his blood up for us, for our forgiveness, for our freedom from sin, then we need to serve people. Not just those that we like and we get along with, but those who despise and reject us as well. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross, not just for us who accept him, who've been baptized into him, who sit in these pews every Sunday. Jesus died for those who spat on him. For those who hurled insults while he was hanging on the cross. He died for them as well as for us. And if Jesus was willing to serve even those people, then we can serve those people as well. Where are you serving? I want you to be great. I want you to be greater than I am in the kingdom. And that begins by serving others. And so if you are serving, great. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. If you're not serving, what I'm not telling you you have to do is go serve everywhere. Okay, I'm not expecting you to serve in the sound booth, plus pass out trays, plus go teach a Sunday school class. But serve somewhere. One place. That's it. I want you to stand in front of Jesus one day and him say, well done, good and faithful slave. But for him to be able to say that, You have to be a slave. You have to be a servant. If you're not serving anywhere, how is Jesus going to say that to you? You can serve somewhere. Whether you're too busy or whether you're physically unable to do some of the things that other people do. God has prepared works for you to do, and he wants you to do them. So let us imitate Jesus in this. Let us be great because of our service. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us in these times where we don't always feel like serving. Help us when it's, when it's hard to find the time when it's hard, to find the energy. Give us the strength and the power to serve others. 
Lord, thank you for, for coming and showing us what true service is. Thank you for this last meal where you shared this final thought about greatness. Father, help us to be the child that trusts. Help us to be the slave to others' desires. Help us to be the youngest and the least of the least. Help us to look after others and what they need. Help us to be great by serving. Your son's name we pray. Amen.